Hello and welcome to Logical, the legal podcast from the Dubai-based law firm, HBL, Yamalaba and Pleska. Logical is the UAE's first legal podcast. As always, our legal expert with me is Ludmilla Yamalaba. Ludmilla is the managing partner of the Dubai-based law firm, HPL Yamalaba and Pleska. Good to see you. Great to see you too, Tim. Thanks for being back. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Summer El-Abd is an Egyptian-British child and adolescent consultant psychiatrist joining us uh, once again. Good to have you here, Dr. Summer. Thank you. Now, uh, welcome to Logical. We're moving on to episode three, or perhaps chapter three, in a very special series of podcasts covering both the legal and the psychological aspects of some very specific topics with the help of our special guest. Now, Dr. Sammer, for episode three, I'd really like to discuss uh, the issues that you most commonly see arise in connection with children, your, I suppose, core area of expertise. Uh, and also, with those issues, how you advise your clients. Let's start there. I see a whole variety of issues uh, in children and young people, uh, starting from uh, simple behavior problems at school or at home, sleeping problems, obsessive compulsive uh, disorder, uh, young people who have obsessional and compulsive traits, anxiety, depression, uh, uh, suicidality in young people. Uh, self-harm, uh, ADHD, which is my hobby horse. It's uh, my uh, specialty. Uh, ADHD is, stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. So these are children who are uh, who have difficulty with attention and concentration and they get easily distracted. And some of them are also physically overactive. Um, and it is important to recognize all these underlying conditions in children because they might present, children might present with, uh, on the surface of things, with behaviors that uh, are not their fault. Uh, so they might uh, appear to be uh, less compliant or not uh, complying with, with schoolwork or uh, not interacting with their peers, really because there is an underlying problem. And many of the, these problems can be tackled, can be treated, and children do get better. We have a lot of evidence base that these conditions do get better, uh, if recognized. Uh, in my view, the first step towards making a change is, is recognizing that there is a problem or there is an issue. Without recognizing an issue, you're not going to tackle it. So again, we go back to our uh, original discussion uh, in the previous episodes of the importance of education and knowledge uh, in parents and young people. So the problems get recognized. I know, I know this is a different question to, uh, to ask or answer, rather. And that's, um, what are some of the more typical reasons that cause or, or grounds that ultimately lead to various mental issues in children? And I know, as, a, as I said, <laughs> prefaced it, it's a very difficult question to answer, but... Are there any specific reasons that, that exist, in particular in this region? For example, is it because we are all kind of far away from home and we don't have a support network? Or is it because there's so many mixed families here? Or is it because the legal system does not exist here to perhaps address or allow families and individuals to have their issues addressed? Or the medical system does not exist? What are, what are kind of your perhaps three to five top reasons that you in particular in your practice see 
uh, tend to sort of re- recur and be more common in terms of you know, being sort of the, the reasons to, to create the psychological issues in children? Well, there are reasons that are uh, that affect children across the board, irrespective of which country they're living in, uh, and they they are they can be divided into genetic reasons. So there are underlying conditions that are inherited. Uh, it's like uh, uh, you know somebody having their hair is black because their parents' hair is black or blonde or uh, so. There are inherited conditions, and they they run down in families. Uh, and that includes, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. There are also the psychosocial issues, which uh, are again present, and they would be specific in different cultures or uh, spe- uh, different communities. Uh, and psychosocial issues would uh, include uh, poverty, unemployment in the parent, uh, support, wider support in the family, uh, whether you have your uh, parent or your brother or sister around to advise and support you. Uh, now, these are issues that would be present in, in across the board. Now, specific to coming back to your question about specific issues in the region, uh, I would highlight uh, some of the psychosocial issues. For example, uh, not having your support because you've left your current country of origin uh, and, and you're here as an individual uh, unit as a family. Um, so you don't have the support. Um, and another one is uh, some families I see, they, they have been changing countries every two or three years because of the employment of the parent. So young people, the children, uh, have to make new friends, start a new school. Um, in, in, in some places, the, the teachers change a lot. Um, and they all add up. It, it's not that one factor is, is, uh, it, it stands out, but when you uh, have multiple factors that interact with each other, whether it's the genetic, whether it's the psychosocial, the family support. If you have a parent who is um, lost their job and they're unemployed and they're really trying to uh, make ends meet and they're low in mood, that will affect the children, obviously, and the marriage and the partner. So they're all interconnected and they all need to be identified to work on them. And the more that these problems are not identified, the more these effects snowball. Can I just pick you up on one point there that you made, Dr. Samarin? It, it, it interests me, uh, something that you said, that um, if children don't have that, I, I suppose one way of putting it is, is a, a real foundation in one place, one school, one uh, home for a period of time. How, how important is it for children to have that solid foundation of the home, the school, the familiarity uh, and the routine? How important is that for a child's life? I think it is important. However, you know, children always surprise me how some of them are quite resilient as well. Sometimes it's the adults actually who find the change more difficult than the children and young people. So, uh, and, and what applies to one young person does not apply to another one. Some, one young person could be quite resilient, another quite sensitive and really finds change very difficult. So these factors uh, will really uh, play, part, play an important part depending on the constitution of the child. Their, their, their genetic makeup, their personality, how they cope. You could have two siblings, sometimes even twins. One is able to cope with these changes and the other one is really unable to cope. Uh, like I have young people where parents in the UK, for example, send them to boarding school. 
one uh, flourishes at the boarding school and loves it because there's also le- lots of extracurricular activity, horse riding and so on, and the other one is doesn't like it at all and gets depressed. And we decide, together with the parents, for example, to put them in a day school where they live with their fam- with their, with their uh, parents. So, and I'm talking about possibly twins, so mm. let alone, you know, so, so one has to... Uh, to consider all these different things and look at the individual really. Are they happy within that, what, what, what is taking place? Do they need to have, if, if a child, for example, a young person needs to have that uh, kind of belonging, maybe it's good for them to join like uh, a volleyball uh, team where they feel uh, this is their, uh, something they're interested in doing. It's, an, it's a, an extracurricular activity. It's a group of young people they feel they belong to. Uh, so it could be uh, the solutions could be in small things that could be thought of. But again, as I said, if you don't identify that this is an issue for that particular person, and you that you will not be able to address it. You know, one of the um, reasons, or I guess peculiar reasons that or differences that we see in this region, that perhaps <clears throat> at least in our observation, that may lead to specialized uh, problems that come out of this region is kind of a, it's a blessing and a curse. And that is, this country has been very gracious and very um, generous to many people who've come here and set up businesses and set up lives here. And as a result, there's been a lot of wealth. A lot of people came here with wealth. A lot of people have made wealth here. And as a result, uh, there have been people that sort of, and this is obviously a generalization, but that's not, it's not too far from the truth, and that is there's a lot of well-to-do families uh, who are perhaps came into wealth early on in their lives, and they had children. And what we see often is that that the easy way for them to um, gratify children or to re- reward children is by just buying more gifts, buying more things. And you know, you know, I'm a mother. We're all parents here, and so yeah, just seeing our, even our communities kids here everything is is, they're so used to immediate gratification part of it is sort of today's world anyway and irrespective where you're in the country or in the world but part of it is also very unique to this region and that's the everybody here wears the latest uh, you know drives the best off it travels to the most amazing places Uh, and these are opportunities that are not available to so many people around the world and so what we often see is the parents are so, first of all, they have the means to buy their children the latest and also provide them with most kind of interesting, exciting opportunities such as you want to go to Legoland, you want to go on a safari, you want to go uh, on a boat. And these experiences are so readily available to so many kids here. And so one of the things we see, at least in our uh, clients who come to us for various divorce and, and family type issues is that there's you know, problems that they at least that they ultimately perhaps realize exist with their children is that they've spoiled them you know and I guess I'm not sure if this exists in the same way in other countries but certainly if I were to compare to the U.S. it just doesn't exist as much because in the U.S. we just there's you have to be a present parent because you know you have nobody else to to take care of your children and so, but here, A, there's so much wealth that people, kids are exposed to so much fancy stuff so early on. And then B, there's so much help here in terms of having nannies, drivers, 
you know, chefs and such. It's all fairly affordable here. So as a result, we see children growing up kind of having everything very early on in life and yet not having perhaps the most basic things. And that's just their parents and their attention and, and their patience and their time. I mean, so that's one of the kind of peculiar and unique uh, uh, sort of angles we have seen at least uh, vis-a-vis our clients and even personally as, you know, through my family and kind of the other parents that we socialize with. Well, it, it, it takes me back to uh, knowledge is empowerment because uh, parents might mean really well to uh, thinking that by, uh, you know, by spoiling their children by buying presents and so on uh, is, is going to make them happy. Or, uh, but we know that uh, good quality time is, is so important with the children and it, it, it good quality time meaning like spending 15 20 minutes playing with a child there, there are rules for example this is about behavior management uh, uh, about how you play with your child how you make the child lead how you praise him and reward them during that playtime uh, and it's so valuable uh, we know that if you go and buy your child or the young person 10 books out of a bookshop they're less likely to read them than if they earned, for example, points to go and buy uh, with their own money uh, a book out of a bookshop. They're more likely to get it and, and to buy it and, and read it uh, straight away. So uh, even if, if the parents mean well, I think uh, knowledge about uh, uh, parenting uh, and how to get the best behavior of your child, how to uh, make sure that your child has good confidence and self-esteem, uh, it, it's all uh, about having that uh, information and skills that you as a parent can implement with your child. And how about the medical system here and the, I guess, the school network or support network? Does it exist? Is it available to help parents uh, deal with their children if they have these kind of issues? I'll tell, give you one example. We had a client who ultimately ended up leaving the country because um, she was a single parent. Uh, with her children here and uh, her child I guess one left and then the other one um, had the ADHD and so required basically a shadow teacher uh, well the school required for her to have a shadow teacher to accompany him to school because he was a bit uh, rowdy I guess (laughs) and as a single parent she just couldn't afford it she just first of all the school required it from her and second of all, obviously, that was going to issue a single parent with a single income. So she couldn't afford it. And so at the end, she moved to the UK where the, the social system uh, gives this basically for free. Schools are free, one and two, even these sort of benefits and, and additional uh, support for parents is available there as, as part of the, of the state. Um, here it isn't. So I don't know if that at all plays a factor, but I know from... My, my experience vis-a-vis our, some of our clients is that this has ultimately resulted in some people leaving the country because they just could not, they did not have enough of a medical and academic support to help them. Right. Um, I think the support system is, is developing and I know that, uh, that there are individual efforts of uh, parents uh, having developed support systems uh, for themselves, whether it's mums in Dubai and uh, they invite uh, specialists to to go and talk to them, and I, uh, in fact, uh, went to some of these organisations, volunteered to to go and talk to them. 
So, uh, you know, the more awareness is, is, uh, is widely spread, uh, people do develop these support systems and things, things are happening, you know, they are taking place uh, and the parents request them and the teachers uh, also request those too and implement some strategy. So I'm, I'm, I am quite impressed of, you know, how things are developing quickly uh, in, uh, in, in the communities. And usually the parents are drivers in, in seeking that support. And do you know if the insurance policies here cover um, psychological help, psychiatric help? Is that sort of covered as a standard provision in most insurance plans or is it like an add-on? Uh, I mean, private insurances, like uh, like in other countries, you know, they, there is a huge variation in what they cover and what they don't cover. Uh, even in the UK, some private insurance don't cover mental health, some do. Some are very picky on on specific areas in mental health they cover. Uh, so that's that's a, that's a different issue, which uh, which can be uh, difficult for some. Can I ask you about children feeling different? Children here very often from mixed marriages, for example, whether that's uh, in terms of uh, language, education, religion, whatever it might be. Um, but how do children and parents deal with those kinds of issues? Because we live in a society here which is incredibly mixed. We, we talk regularly about the 200 nationalities that come together and live in the one city of Dubai, the one uh, country of the UAE. Um, but it must be hard to kind of stamp your own identity uh, on yourself when, you know, there are so many influences. Parents coming from mixed cultures is, is, uh, is always an issue. And it's, a, it's an issue with, uh, and couples have different ways of, of dealing with it. It's an issue for the uh, couple relationship. Then you have, once they have children, it, it's about parenting. Uh, it depends on the country you're living in. So if you are, for example, uh, living in a European country and you've done your doctorate there and you studied and you're, you're of uh, Middle Eastern origin and then you go back to your home country, um, you, you, without even one's own knowledge, uh, you, you change your behavior a little bit in mm. that uh, your uh, our behavior changes all the time, but uh, your uh, you identify maybe more with your original culture, and uh, and they come in the way with with your partner who's only known you, for example, for the last ten years when you lived in uh, in Europe, and then you you don't you know one that is not very knowledgeable about how do I want to bring up my children. Now, if you have parents coming from the same culture, even though Coming from the same culture, it could be quite different, but at least you have more common grounds. But if you're coming from a completely different culture with different values, let alone the religious ones, these things evolve as you bring up your children. And sometimes you, quite, you, you know, one gets quite surprised about how one does things with one's own children. You know, I mean, I have some parents saying, I always, you know, was against how parents, uh, my parents brought me up. And uh, they were very autocratic, and uh, and then I ended up doing exactly that what my parents did to me with my own children. So you just get to learn about your own self when you are bringing up your own children. You say, really, did I do that? I can't believe I said that. You know, is it coming from me? So when there are sort of cultural and religious and uh, differences, you know, these uh, uh, these. Things suddenly come up, come to the surface, 
And then you get to a point where your son stamps his own identity on himself. My wife's Scottish, I'm English, my son is apparently Scottish. So there you go. It backs up your thesis entirely. Um, but it, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? How children, and you alluded to this earlier as well, um, and I want to bring this back in, how resilient children can be. And I think in a place like Dubai, where we have so much opportunity and there is so much Let's not put too fine a point on this. There is so much mollycoddling of children, offering children too much, uh, not withholding anything, that that doesn't help build resilience in children. It can't be that a child has everything they want, uh, surely. You, you, you have to work for things. You have to earn them. Don't you? Just use my own example uh, from just a few weeks ago. My son, I, I have to admit, I because I... I Get to be so busy. I get to fight, you know, I have limited time with my children. So when the, the time I have, I just want to be there with them uh, to, the, to the fullest extent possible. So if my son says I want a toy, I go okay. Let me go buy you a toy. So uh, my husband obviously says he has to earn. <laughs> so I've stopped that practice now. And my son comes a few weeks ago. He's mom. It's been so long since I got my last present. <laughs> <laughs> So I, as a parent, am learning and evolving and changing and, and restraining myself. But it's interesting, to your point, Tim, it's just, he's like, oh, it's been so long. It was like all of three weeks I have not gotten a present. <laughs> and he's working the angles already. Yes. It's kind of impressive. There's a life skill to be learned there as well. Uh, but it is, it's a really important point, isn't it? Children yeah. have to, to understand the difference uh, and to build that resilience, to earn something. That, that's got to be important. Yeah, and, it, and it's good for their self-confidence, for their self-esteem, uh, because it, you need to feel good about yourself. So... Mm. I think if you earn something, as I mentioned with the book, for example, you're more likely to read it as well. So it's not just about doing, you know, doing some hard work because you, 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 you feel you've put effort into something. Uh, you're more likely to enjoy whatever you, whatever you get as well. Um, so it's a win-win situation, I think, when children earn, uh, even if it's little chores during the holiday of some chores in the house um, and, and having a reward system. Uh, we all like getting praised, even adults. And I tell parents, when you're working in business or a bank, you get a bonus for 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 uh, the extra work you've done and uh, if you've successfully achieved something. So let alone, let alone the children, uh, they feel uh, they have a good sense about themselves. Uh, so you mentioned earlier the word autocratic. And um, we all know that there are certain cultures that are perhaps more authoritarian in the way they raise children. And uh, we see many, this is a perfect mix of every possible culture and uh, mix of culture uh, in the planet. And we see it all here. And there are a lot of um, families here from certain cultures that still kind of live or at least are um, products of that authoritarian culture. Uh, and so I, even though they are in, for your purposes, Dr. Summer, they're not children. It, for my purposes, they are still children because they're children of somebody else. And so I see them in the business environment, but yet they are obviously children of their parents. And then the way they run a business to this day, I still see that. And they themselves, they, they, they acknowledge it. They know it, but they can't really deal with, do, change it or do anything with it is that the way they, they, behave in business are so, so much a reflection of how they were raised as part of these cultures. So even though they're in their 
late 30s and 40s, they still so behold, feel so beholden and controlled by their parents and their fathers in particular because it's you know, a lot of these cultures, the patriarch is a truly the true patriarch. And so in their 30s and 40s, they're still afraid. Here they're sitting with me in business meetings and the, a call comes from their father. They start sort of shaking and they know it. They know that they're too controlled and yet they cannot break that, break that mold. So... These are probably not the children that you would see because they're not of, of that age, but they are still in our practice. Uh, we see how significantly they're still affected uh, by the way they were raised as children. And so it will be interesting to see how they raise their own children. Uh, but, you know, this is certainly an angle that you don't see as much in, you know, perhaps in the U.S. or in other, other countries where you don't have as much of a mix of a, f- a fre- fresh mix of cultures. Do you see much of that? And do you, do you know what I'm referring to? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And and I think you know we uh, we end up. I mean, we end up doing what we know uh, happened to us. So if, for example, you've been uh, brought up in a certain way, and you become a parent, if you don't have uh, education as a parent of different ways of doing it, you'll just repeat the same pattern. And think you're doing your best. And I think that that is, again, another duty of uh, informing parents of better ways of uh, bringing up their children. You know, I sometimes run, uh, I do a parenting workshop and we talk about praise, reward, limit setting, all the criteria in parenting. And, uh, you know, I, I have some parents getting up and saying, what's wrong with physical punishment, with punishment? Because you stop the behavior. If, if the child misbehaves and you punish them, uh, they stop the behavior. And, you know, it's, it's really a good and important question uh, because uh, you can stop the behavior in uh, by doing uh, other way, by following other ways that are actually much more productive in stopping the behavior and building the young person's self-esteem and confidence. Because by hitting the child, you're stopping the behavior, A, the behavior will stop temporarily, so 10 minutes later, it could uh, start again. The second thing, you are teaching the young person that hitting is okay. So what will happen if the parent is hitting them? They go at school and hit their peers. And you get that sometimes, that the child gets referred by the teacher because of their misbehavior at school. And then when you dig in, you know, you find that actually uh, this is a way of uh, 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 handling misbehavior at home. Uh, and the child is, has learned that method. So parents are, I find parents are really open to learning new ways of uh, handling their children. They're always very keen to get better outcomes. Uh, some parents, I, I dealt with a group of parents in the UK, for example, who were actually referred by the court to for parenting classes. Um, and uh, some of them said we were, the whole group of parents actually, they were all, raised in care themselves and they said nobody played with us as children we don't know how to play with our own children uh, because we did not get that when we were uh, children ourselves so uh, you know there's always one first step of teaching somebody and educating them about how to do it differently it's never too late in my opinion and do you know does this country have the i guess you use the word care so these homes of care or, or care centers where 
there are kids without parents, I guess orphanages you would call them in other countries. Do you know if there are orphanages here? And if so, do you deal with them much, with the, the children that, that are either you know, come out of the orphanages or there are still in orphanages? I'm not very familiar with the system, the whole system. I know there is a, there is a place, for example, for battered uh, women, uh, that, and they, they, they do provide psychological care and so on. Uh, but but I don't have enough knowledge really to cover that. Yeah, because we have yeah we we've heard um, <clears throat> that there are and we've seen basic reports that about abandoned children. That there are a lot of abandoned children here that are just being born and abandoned. Uh, so I wonder if you've come across the centers that pick them up, and we normally hear that some some member of the one royal family or another ultimately creates some kind of a, a care yes. center for them. And yeah. so I was just. You're curious whether you've had the experience uh, with children that you know, have been abandoned, because I can imagine that's a, a lifelong trauma. I, I'm only familiar with uh, members of families where who've taken these children under their wing and actually brought them up and provided another home for them, which is lovely to see. Uh, and they grew up and they, they arranged their weddings. And uh, so uh, there are very uh, gracious families which, which actually do take uh, th- these children under their care. And to that point, in fact, there is a law, that specific law, that addresses abandoned children. And that is, uh, under that law, there is a provision ultimately for <clears throat> the local families to take these abandoned children into their care, sort of like a long-term foster care. It's not your official uh, abo- um, adoption, but it is uh, this, this long-term foster care. And the law actually sets out exactly what, under this foster care type um, framework, uh, what, what these parents, foster parents, can and should do. And it's, as you said, it, there's certainly, it, they're quite specific and there's a lot of provisions as to, in terms of what these parents can do and, and should do uh, to provide for these abandoned children. So, yeah, I think that's a very positive law that actually allows for various um, members of society to actually create that framework to give home to these otherwise abandoned children. And plus, I mean, recently, Ludmilla, we've seen changes to the criminal code, the penal code, to uh, help aid in boosting protection uh, of children, children who've been victims of domestic abuse, for example. There, there have been some dramatic changes in the law very recently. Uh, for sure. There is, in fact, a fairly new domestic abu- uh, law against domestic abuse, and that's domestic abuse. And it is very, very expansive and comprehensive and in ways that we ourselves were quite surprised. I'm not even sure if similar laws exist in other countries, as at least in, in this kind of form. And that is where ultimately the objective of the law is to uh, to criminalize domestic abuse. And the definition of domestic, it goes, I think, up to the fourth or fifth degree of relative and so, and in terms of abuse, it's no longer just the physical abuse, it's mental abuse and it's psychological abuse and it's, it's even financial abuse. And that is, for example, uh, deprivation of, of sufficient funds for children or for other family members uh, or mental bullying and such. Um, so the law is there. I just, we have yet to see how it's going to be applied and enforced, uh, but I know it didn't exist before. And uh, I'm uh, curious to see if Dr. Sama has seen anything that you perhaps would um, you know, you know, see, see if anyone has availed themselves of, of that law. I know that we, in our practice we've tried uh, 
because it doesn't just apply to children. It applies to all sorts of adults as well. Your grandparents, for example, you hear that grandparents or, or parents get bullied and kind of abandoned by their children. And so all that would qualify or spousal abuse, uh, but we have yet to see how the authorities actually react to it. But uh, I'm also curious, Dr. Sam, if you've seen anything like this, one and two, if um, you see much of domestic abuse and uh, in, in families here. I have seen, and, and again, it's a difficult issue to talk about because there's shame and guilt, and I think uh, confidentiality is such an important one as well. Um, so uh, maybe coming back to the foster care, because I did work in the UK on a foster care team. So it was a mental health team providing uh, service for the children who have been placed with foster carers and also providing training for, for foster carers. So this is a whole other area that, need, you know, when it, it, when it is uh, taking place, you need to provide uh, support, you need supervision for the, of the uh, foster carers, uh, help the children, look at mental health issues regarding the, for the, of the children, um, and, uh, and they need regular supervision, for example, by social services and so on. So uh, this is another big area to develop. You see, and so just going back to um, all the legislation that has perhaps been uh, introduced in the last um, few years and continues to be introduced is just there was another recent amendment in the penal code, for example, that now criminalizes um, any kind of sexual intercourse or assault, sexual assault with anybody below the age of 14 with life imprisonment. I mean, that is a new law that's just been in effect for the last few months, perhaps a month. And that, um, I think, certainly goes to perhaps address certain issues that might have existed here before that did not have a legal framework to rely on. But it's ultimately abuse, you know, various types of sexual abuse that might happen in uh, kind of familial circumstances. Now, anything below the age of 14, even if consensual, is uh, penalized by life imprisonment. Also, there is a new law in the penal code that... Um, uh, criminalizes any kind of sexual assault uh, by coercion uh, or manipulation. Uh, and also there's another provision in the law that criminalizes any kind of uh, sexual assault or, uh, or um, uh, attempts uh, at within certain family dynamic to anybody uh, who is ascendants or, interestingly enough, guardians. Uh, if somebody is being assaulted, sexually assaulted by a guardian, uh, or anybody with authority, they are now that's now criminalized by law, uh, criminal law, and that these provisions did not exist before. They're, they're literally hot off the press, mm. and so I'm very, um, I guess, optimistic that this is going to aid a lot of um, children and a lot of families in moving forward. But certainly, this I would consider to be a fairly groundbreaking rule, perhaps not unexpected given where we are, uh, but with regards to legislation, it just these rules do not exist, and now they're specifically on the books. Yeah, and I, I agree. They're groundbreaking rules, and the UAE has been leading in this, which is fantastic, and uh, I'm sure it will, what will follow this is uh, training of uh, different disciplines, really, of interviewing these children, interviewing the adults, the perpetrators, uh, and looking at therapeutic interventions of how best to uh, tackle these issues as well. 
And do you do you work with schools, or do you do your clinic, or your or people of your or your colleagues? Do they get approached by schools to do some sort of collaboration with schools? Because I imagine when children are experiencing this, how will they know who to contact? So uh, uh, except through schools somehow, but obviously because children who suffer these kind of issues, they won't voluntarily come up and and, and phrase them or articulate themselves. So it would have to be someone like the examples you've given is at the school that notices this and addresses so do you know if there's some kind of a centralized effort or initiatives that that encourage schools to build relationships or collaborations with psychiatrists and psychologists that help bring these kind of issues or create a forum or venue for children to air these concerns in school do you know i think i i i can't answer that question uh all i can say is from my experience in the UK, that it's a, it's a multidisciplinary effort when these things come to the surface. Usually the teachers are the ones who notice something. And, uh, and then you have a team of uh, trained social workers as well in the area. Uh, you have a child protection pediatrician, for example, uh, in the UK who's informed, collaborates with a social worker. So it's a whole team that are specialists in this area. It's not just a, a one... An, standing uh, psychiatrist who deals with it uh, and usually they go to the pediatricians first to look at evidence for that and they and the pediatrician uh, is in touch with the with a social worker and they have a special specialist in that too so uh, and, and training the police as well it's really important how to uh, take uh, information and how to document it so it's it's very much uh, a process that involves so many disciplines that are uh, in direct uh, touch with the child and the family uh, and where the abuse is happening. And from your perspective, do you see similar initiatives that are being discussed or implemented here uh, in the UE as, as the ones you just mentioned that exist there, in there the UK? Are. Yes, there are. And there are you involved in them at all? Uh, actually, the, just last year, there was training uh, done here at Rashid Hospital. Uh, regarding child abuse uh, by uh, specialists, so uh, very positive. And we did a workshop this year with uh, Abu Dhabi at the uh, International Mental Health Conference, uh, again on child abuse, um, at all the uh, workshop. So how do you raise awareness? How do people raise awareness or how do they find out? So if there are those who want to either attend these workshops or get involved in some of these initiatives, how do they find out? through the adverts that go about it. Uh, and, and some of them are internal within government hospitals and uh, some through the conference organizers like the Abu Dhabi one. Uh, and we had quite a good number of attendees as well. And do your cl- does your clinic or do clinics uh, advertise? or? No, the clinic itself doesn't advertise mm-hmm. uh, because, as I said, it's, it's, it's a multidisciplinary effort uh, that goes into this. And that's part three in our special series of podcasts, the common legal and psychological issues my two guests face this time with regard to children. Our special guest today was child and adolescent consultant psychiatrist Dr. Sama Al-Abd, a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK. Thank you once again for your expertise. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sama. It was very insightful. As always, our legal expert, you heard just there, Ludmilla Yamalava, managing partner here at HPL Yamalava and Plethka. Uh, and a huge thank you to you as well. Thank you, Tim. If you have a legal question you need answered in a future episode of Logical, 
We can do that, or if you'd like a consultation with a qualified UAE experienced legal professional, get in touch with us via WhatsApp 009715252511611, or you can head to lylawyers.com and click the contact button.